a new team comes in and the only questions on the conference call are, you know, what's your comp? You know, experienced sell-side analysts have really seen it all. They have a unique perspective on companies and how to value them. That's not the right question. <laughs> the right question is, tell us about your team. Information is the currency of Wall Street. And great analysts know how to process that information into timely buy, hold, and sell recommendations in their sectors. Too many wrong calls can cost you your job. So rest assured, if you've been an analyst for more than 10 years, you really know what you're doing. Nicole Miller, senior research analyst from Piper Sandler is one such analyst. She's been doing the job for over 15 years. And she can tell you how consumer behavior, industry trends, and the competitive landscape translate into stock recommendations. She can also give you a great perspective regarding investors and how they view and think about public companies. You know, being a public company can be really hard and small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. And over the last 20 plus years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market, the media and other stakeholder groups. We'll demystify these groups so public companies can learn and unlock their true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Nicole's picks aren't solely based on large sets of financial and other data. They're born out of conversations and relationships that have been forged over time from her evaluation of management and her understanding of consumers. Having someone whose analysis you trust is rare, so we invited Nicole to come talk to us and talk about what she's learned from her time on the sell side. It's been 15 years at Piper Sandler now, which I'm pretty excited to report because our industry, and I suppose, you know, in this way, and in many ways mirrors the hospitality industry, has a lot of turnover, right? And to keep our platform and our team together across all of the different services we provide for more than a decade, again, 15 years, is just super unprecedented. And I did 10 years in the space before joining Piper and um, just really fell in love with it. Uh, what I like is, you know, the application of what you do day to day. There's so much application, I guess I would say. And then also everything happening in food service, in hospitality, in restaurants, it's a real reflection of what's happening in the world. So for us every day, we kind of roll up our sleeves and hope we can connect culture and capital. Obviously, everybody had uh, a scary experience with COVID and everything, but it's just absolutely fascinating coming out the other end. What are you seeing with the companies you cover and how are some of those changes permanent? Like what, what's going on out in the restaurant world and certainly the food service world? I think that more might be not permanent than permanent or unchanged versus change. And what I mean by that is after we could catch our breath in the middle of the pandemic and maybe start to digest what was happening, we were super confident that the consumer would come back to restaurants. Didn't know when, but we knew that this wasn't a permanent uh, shift to eating at home behavior. Now the channels for sure are a shift and there might be some permanent shifting in that, meaning the consumer showed up in the drive-through and they showed up with delivery, right? And now we see a pivot back to dining rooms. So I think the channel shifts might be permanent, but the consumers eating um, at least you know 50 cents of every food dollar away from the home, uh, we're headed back in that direction faster than we would have ever thought. 
Yeah. And so based on kind of your research and talking to people right now, I have to think that with cases dramatically down, people are going like bonkers. They're going outside. They're going to their favorite restaurant. Obviously, the you know comps versus last year are going to be monstrous, but are you seeing kind of sequential improvement kind of month to month? Yeah. The thing that we're trying to measure is 2021 versus 2019 in most cases. Now, you know, some restaurants, you know, maybe they call them beneficiaries or very few and far between were relatively proactive versus reactive. So maybe they didn't have a big slump for the year, but almost everyone really did. And so what we're measuring come March, April, now May and into June is the true definition of comp gets a little distorted. So we're trying to understand where are sales versus 2019 and, and really across the board, they're up. Yeah. And it seems to me like every company is really talking up their technology game and whether all of them actually have their technology game together remains to be seen. What companies in your mind have done a really good job with technology and um, that kind of sets them up well for the next few years? Yeah, I think Chipotle is a great example of just crushing it. In all fairness, let's say we won't use Starbucks as a proxy because they kind of sit out there in terms of the habitual nature of the product itself and just how far advanced they were in terms of technology. So let's just kind of put them to the side and let them be beverage for the moment. But within just the restaurant construct, I think what Chipotle has done is interesting. Now, in all fairness, if you back it up going into the pandemic, this is a company-owned model, so not good or bad. They just didn't have to work with franchisees in the in the moment. They don't have debt. They're debt-free. Not good or bad, but didn't have to go talk to, to lenders and could pay the bills, right? So didn't have to deal with landlords. So very, very proactive. So they were still running point on strategy. And one piece that they were already deploying was technology. And so they have a few different things they do that are just really cool. They pushed a new product, Quesadilla only through delivery. So it could stop up the line potentially if everyone was ordering that at the front of the line in the restaurant, right? But there's also kind of luring in a new customer or getting the same customer with frequency. There's a pricing opportunity. So it's really cool that they took a new product and put it in just one channel and, and tried and tested it that way. And loyalty is a big piece too. I do think it's interesting and I maybe don't really know why, but it seems almost every brand is getting like 20, 25 million loyalty members. And I don't know if they're all the same 20, 25 million people out there that that like apps and, and deals, or if they're 20 to 25 million unique individuals to these brands, but, but they're great at loyalty as well. How about companies like uh, Cisco, for example? What's What are kind of the tailwinds or, or headwinds? You know, obviously commodity prices are spiking and like, how does... How's that affecting everything that you're seeing? We put Cisco in the bucket of structurally changed, which I would say we put both Brinker and Cisco there. And it is pretty interesting to think of, you know, investment recommendations pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic and who thought you'd say Chili's and Brinker and who thought you'd be talking about food service distribution in terms of Cisco. But the fact of the matter is both management teams actually just really stood up and stood out to us. They made structural changes in terms of technology. Cisco specifically has not only realigned field management, which is important, but they have a pricing tool that's super powerful. And they can go in and show transparency transparency to every single restaurant that they work with on every single item. And each item at each restaurant is unique and important. And so through that process, there's an ability for them through scale and through that process to 
to leverage pricing in their favor, but yet do it with transparency. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's just so fascinating how some companies respond to change. We see it here across all industries, and I'm sure you're seeing it with all your colleagues in, in research. Switching gears a little bit, the podcast, as you know, is called Welcome to the Arena, which is a tagline we've used from time to time. And it's hopefully all kinds of people are tuning into it, including management teams and, and everyone in the ecosystem that really helps companies be public and maximize their value to all stakeholders. What companies or companies, in your opinion, do the best job of helping you do your job? That's a great question. And, um, you know, all joking aside, those that use every resource internally and, and externally, including your platform, to do exactly that. I mean, to bridge the gap. It's a tough job and uh, it's serving a lot of parties. <laughs> yeah. No. And listen, I used to do the job like a really long time ago. And I think it's, you know, as an analyst, you you need access to management. And so, you know, there's some companies that are better at that than others. You know, they need to understand that you have a job to do, even if you say something negative. I mean, have you ha- ever had an experience where you said something negative and a company just went crazy on you? I actually, I'll, I'll share the opposite experience and maybe to just to you know, put a finer point on your question. The recommendation I would give and what is really useful to us is if we ask a question and there isn't a, you know, a compelling, straightforward answer, no is never the answer. It is never the answer. Use the CNBC effect. Use this arena effect, which is you ask me a question and I answer and say whatever it is that I want to say. And so they have a message that they want to telegraph. Telegraph it in the same message with different ways and different angles and say, yes, let's talk about that and say yes to every question and just answer it maybe very indirectly. That's perfectly acceptable and still creates a framework for us to kind of, you know, have a discussion. And the other thing I would say is sensitivities, you know, around high and low and this and that and what may or may not happen. We're not asking anybody to be grounded in guidance right now. There's just, I don't even see how it's possible. The guidance piece a lot of companies, I think, feel that they, you know, look, every company has to talk about the future, right? But, you know, the way I always look at it, it's saying, okay, this is, it's not a big mystery to anyone that you got slammed in COVID and stores are shut and this is just not a normal environment. And so you can, you know, you can say, listen, all things considered and what we see right now, we certainly know our expense side. We may not know what the revenues are, but we're going to give you enough to kind of be able to talk intelligently to investors and to your, you know, internal sales force and stuff like that. And it's interesting, a lot of companies and and look, rightfully so, these are people who really know how to build a business. They don't know the art of the stock market or they don't maybe understand the nuances of an investment bank and how it works. And I think that's really key. Jack Hartung at uh, Chipotle always struck me as someone who was super straightforward about everything, you know, transparent. And I always think the companies that do the best, they care about their stock price, but it's not the number one priority. You know, I don't know if you've ever walked into a CEO's office and they have some kind of like quote machine on their desk (laughs) where it's just like, oh man, run the other way. Right. If that's, if that's what they're caring about every day, it's a disaster. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're aware and we understand that awareness, but definitely, um, 
you know, don't want to focus on this. I agree too. Jack, Jack does a great job at Chipotle of talking about the algorithm, right? So, you know, we can generate our own earnings conclusion off of, you know, a same source sales and a store level margin algorithm. It's, it's super helpful. As consumers and investors become more socially conscious, companies are increasingly incorporating ESG, that's environmental social governance, into their investment narrative. People want to know, is your company carbon neutral? Do they support fair labor practices? Is your board diverse? I asked Nicole if those considerations factor into her analysis of a company. We're at the beginning stages of that, and I think it's a great question. Um, I see more of it in retail just by way of comparison to restaurants specifically in terms of the public landscape and how that plays into the stock price performance. But if a company wants to get that next you know, generation investor, it is at some point going to be a prerequisite where they're going to check the box. And on more stocks than you would imagine where they're interested and if they have to check that box, we'll start having discussions about what pieces of the puzzle, like how are they helping the people? How are they helping the environment? Where we can start to make the case until the company itself is kind of reporting on those metrics. So you've seen a lot from Starbucks lately and from McDonald's and Chipotle, but I would also share that in terms of emerging concepts where that's kind of our second shift, right? Day job is the public company. Second shift is emerging concepts, if you will. They're on it. They're totally on it from day one. There's a genuine, authentic nature, not that because you're big, you're not. But I think the bigger companies should be very aware of the practices of the small companies. And there's probably some learnings there. Yeah. No, I, I think that it's just something that has exploded. You know, I think with ESG used to be just G, as we all know, and now it's ENS. And I think every company is really trying how to figure out how to tell a story with much more dimension to it. And you're right, you know, these smaller, interesting companies, you know, you kind of ignore that at your own peril if you're the big guys. You know, speaking of smaller companies, I don't know about you, but I always felt like meeting with these you know, smaller, interesting concepts is like so refreshing, you know, cause like the, the top guys like behind the counter making sandwiches even, you know, and like, you know, obviously they might've had a tougher time in the pandemic because their balance sheets are nowhere near some of the bigger companies. But what are you, what are you seeing coming out of the pandemic for kind of the private companies? Well, I mean, they're just so great at culinary. And so you asked me earlier about technology and I get it. I get it from like a stock price perspective. It's something that's asked on every conference call and certainly can drive comps and drive profitability. So we certainly understand and appreciate it. But to think that a restaurant company is a tech company is is a huge you know, mistake. And so when we go out and see the emerging concepts, sure. I mean, they're using technology. If they can find the cash flow for it or the investment, like, it's absolutely important. It's prioritized. But number one, they're coming back in recovery with the best culinary innovation and application that you've ever seen with the best service that you can get at any table of any brand. They're just absolutely crushing it with their people and their food. And that's what this industry is really all about. Yeah, that's a really good point. It does seem like, you know, Wall Street is can be so hung up in like margins and technology and all that stuff, because you do hear it on every call. <laughs> like at the end of the day, it's about the food, right? And are you going to go back? 
you know, we'll go entire conference calls without talking about the food or the team. And that kind of drives me bonkers. And I try to, you know, get one of those questions. And Starbucks is a great example, right? That team has turned over. I think it says more about the quality of individual that can go to a company like Starbucks that, of course, is going to be bit away in this environment. So it's just the natural risk of being that big and that great. New team comes in, and the only questions on the conference call are, what's your comp? That's not the right question. <laughs> the right question is, tell us about your team. How did you build? What do you expect? What's the accountability? How are you leading in a virtual world? How are you reopening? So anyway, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you've been doing this for long enough that you you know the, the pertinent questions because all that other stuff, you know, I think when you first become an analyst, it's a difficult job to begin with. But at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, to be successful, you have to be a good relationship builder, which you are. And just understanding, you know, and I, I would imagine some of your board work that you've done has given you an appreciation for kind of the foodie parts. So you have to be a foodie, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We have uh, exposure to some of the, the best food in the country. And yet, you know, we channel check from any given in any in this household. We'll eat at Olive Garden and McDonald's and then we'll be at the the finest restaurants, you know, in the country in any given week. So we could have worse jobs. That's for sure. That's for sure. Um, back to uh, some of the private company universe. Are there any that you would want to point out that you know you think are real up and comers that have momentum that really have legs for the long term? I think what we want to say about private companies would be two things. The first would just be the fundamental company backdrop. There is equally awesome companies that are limited service and full service. And I thought it was really sad that some of my, some in my shoes were writing off the full service industry before the pandemic because the benefit of the demographic backdrop where the millennial is becoming a young adult and doing everything that the generation ahead of it did just a decade later, meaning they're going to eat, they're going to sit down and they want service and they want alcohol. And that's what full service is all about. And now the impairment of the independence does make those at scale and full service even stronger. So I think it's just really important to understand that emerging concepts are not all fast casual. There's great limited service and great fast casual, but there's amazing full service brands out there. The second thing we'd say, you know, our day job is stocks, right? And we're short on investment ideas. Uh, the last expansion cycle for restaurants was 2010 to 2015. I think there were like 17 IPOs, got up to like 60 some publicly traded restaurants. Well, we spent the last four or five years in a contraction cycle, mostly M&A, and there's maybe 40 at most publicly traded restaurant stocks. And some of them are quite small, which can make investment a little bit challenging. So from an equity capital markets backdrop, the industry is really, really has an appetite for new investments. Do you think the pandemic really shook a lot of like absolute supply out of the market, meaning whether it's a mom and pop or small chains or whatever. I mean, are we are we entering a period here where there's dramatically reduced, you know, supply and people are want to get out and go have fun and dine out? I mean, are, is it kind of shaping up like that or is that kind of a naive way to look at it? No, I think it's it, it definitely happened. Any way you kind of look at it, maybe 100,000 units. So whatever you use as a denominator, restaurant locations, like, you know, around six, 700,000 before the pandemic, total eating place points of distribution closer to a million. So about 10% fallout. 
it doesn't mean every occasion translates. I mean, they probably, you know, we're not doing well for a reason. So it doesn't necessarily translate to a lot of dollars to be picked up just because, you know, there's some failed concepts. But we do expect ultimately, and it will take a little bit longer, but we'd ultimately expect an independent revival. And there really has to be. I mean, Tom, if we don't have an independent revival, you and I are going to be stuck eating Big Macs. I mean, we need independence for culinary innovation and, and the whole notion of hospitality. I mean, that's what they lend to the industry. You know, the financial world is always changing and industries are always evolving. For example, new technologies like advances in data analytics and artificial intelligence are increasingly part of restaurants and hospitalities. Regulations like MIFID, an EU law that increases transparency, has transformed the landscape as well. So where does she think equity research is headed from here? That's a great question. Um, I would have thought, given MIFID and the pandemic, that you would have seen consolidation is one thing that we haven't seen. So not sure what that says. But in terms of the daily practice, I think it can. I think it can shift. I still think there's plenty of emphasis on the short term. We get a lot more resources thrown at us and also our buy side investing counterparts. And so if you work hard, there's a lot of really good work that can be done in those data points but it can also be noise. And so there's good and bad in that. So there's a lot more resourcing going on for sure. I still think there's a good balance between the short term and the long term, which we're always looking you know, for. I'd like to think it applies beyond just the hospitality industry, but again, understanding the human condition and understanding the culture and the teams alongside unit level economics. I mean, I think that's ultimate is the connecting the, the culture and the capital, but you know, there's a tendency to still be caught up in the noise. I'm not sure that will change. <laughs> People always say, don't, don't focus on the short term and, you know, okay, well, you're forcing me to report every 90 days. So for a company to do well in 90 day increments doesn't mean they can't invest in the future. I always look at Amazon, you know, the behemoth and they, they set expectations from day one, which is like, look, we're going to lose a lot of money building this thing out. And Wall Street gave them a pass on investing in the business. And you know, I think companies need to understand that depending on their circumstances and valuation or where the stock is, it's like, you know, if you need to spend some money, like spend it, it's actually a good thing, you know, kind of starving a, a company into some quarterly result and it weakens you longer term is just not the right way to go. And people like yourself and smart people on the buy side, I think probably see it, right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is where I think Shake Shack is, is an excellent example of, their ability to grow big and big and bigger and bigger, but yet stay small with like their mindset and their culture and their approach and tons of investment. They make no apology for where store level margin is. There's no apology for G&A. Now that doesn't mean they're not trying to leverage those line items. Of course they are, but they realize it's going to take some time and they know how to get there. It's not a short-term plan. It's a long-term plan. You know, if there's a quarter that isn't aligned with what, an investor or a sell-side analyst was looking for, they just continue to go back to the same strategy, ex, you know, find a new way of explaining it and doubling down. And I think they've done a really good job of sticking to the same storyline, not because it's a storyline, but because it's the narrative as it stands behind the strategy. Because it's the truth. Yeah. You understand the more important things that these management teams should work on. And I always think like as a CEO or a CFO, 
I would never be bashful about asking someone in your position, what could we do? What could we be doing better? You know, how can we communicate our story? Like, what do you need to do your job? And uh, I think a lot of companies intuitively don't know that because they're scared of kind of like the stock market and activists and like, are you a friend or are you an enemy? And what if you say something bad about me? It's, you know, just demystifying that process with new management teams, I think is really critical, you know? Yeah. I mean, we do the same thing. Like if we have a top investment recommendation, we try to spend the equal amount of time figuring out where are we going to be wrong? What is something that might happen that would trigger us to change our mind? We try to channel that and challenge ourselves on stocks we like as much as those where we maybe have a more muted outlook or, or point of view in the interim. I think it's very important. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's why you're successful. That's why you're a Foiker, which we love. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being the first guest on the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, ICR. You guys are the best. Analysts like Nicole can tell you what investors are thinking, what competitors are doing, which way the markets are shifting, but it's a two-way street. Analysts need to have a clear understanding of a company's long-term strategy and the operational and financial specifics of how they'll get there. They also need to understand the human capital component that's critical to success, and that's why Nicole beats the drum for connecting culture and capital. A great tagline. It's an honor to have our longtime friend, Nicole Miller of Piper Sandler, join us on the very first episode of Welcome to the Arena. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena.